this is the Angry GM, and this is the Angry GM's mostly monthly live chat for the month of May. And I did sort of stumble there, so, oh well, what can you do? And the timer has been started because I am joined by Proselys, the Royal Metroid GM producer, who is producing tonight and who's going to keep me to a strict one-hour timetable. Um... Anyway, oh, and also as a reminder for everybody who is listening live, and gosh, what a turnout. I don't know why I deserve that, but gosh, what a turnout nonetheless. Everybody who's listening live, you are all invited to participate in Angry Bingo by going to the pinned message. The Angry Bingo is administered and created by Nitsua, and I have nothing to do with it. Um, whenever the things that happen on your downloaded bingo card happen, go ahead and check them off. And the first one to bingo, uh, is given a book by Nitsua. Uh, and if Nitsua is the first one to bingo, Nitsua buys himself a book, which he has done the last several times, which is starting to lead me to su suspect that this thing might be rigged. Anyway, is given <laughs> Nitsua, is given by Nitsua a book. That's what I said. Oh, yeah, to, not a book by Nitsua. You know what? You know, uh, thanks for the pedantry. Growliness. And now, see, this also kills the whole lead-in thing, because I do have an outline tonight, and there's a couple of topics that I want to discuss and ramble on, and I really do need to learn to not look at the chat while I'm talking on a topic, because every time I'm talking about a topic and I suddenly lose my train of thought or get distracted or forget what I was going to say next, it's because the chat scrolled, and that still distracts me terribly because I can't not read it. So... At the same time, it feels weird, like I could minimize Discord until I'm ready to look at the live chat Q&A thread and answer questions and respond to comments. Um, but then it would feel really weird me just talking to my, um, my, my, what do you call it? The wallpaper, the thing in the back, you know, not the literal wallpaper, but the wallpaper on the computer and the wallpaper behind the computer too. Anyway, I normally start these live chats off with news and updates and talk about what my what my plan is and what's going on. And Nitsua just distracted me slightly um, with a parenthetical remark because it scrolled. <laughs> Nitsua's really trying to sabotage this one tonight. Anyway... I usually try to... I, I actually have minimized Discord now so that I can get through this. Um... <laughs> uh, oh, wait, am I? Yeah, okay. Totally not distracting, says Arkham. Okay, I'm gonna, I have minimized Discord so that I can get through this. Okay, I normally start these things off with news and updates, and I talk about my plans for the future and content that's upcoming and changes that are being made. And the last several months, that new, those news and updates have been various flavors of depressing because they have mostly been about how I am just kind of really struggling to get, to get things where I need them to be, to, to get, to find my groove. Let's call it that, to find my groove. Okay. And I have ke kept adjusting plans and timelines to allow for that. And things keep going not the way I hoped they would go. Um, 
and every time I get close, it seems like something else comes up. And also, I don't like to be the sort of person who makes excuses and, you know, who blames things and says, you know, all this came up or that came up or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, like, yeah, shit just keeps happening. And at the same time, the last couple of live chats and also more than a few of the proofread alouds with live Q&As, which I've been trying to get back to doing regularly because people really enjoy the proofread alouds and I enjoy doing the Q&As. Um, plus, the Q&As are kind of a fun way to for me to address, not just address stuff, but also to find out what things I have said that aren't entirely clear and are going to come back to haunt me in the comments later when the thing goes into early access and then a week later when the thing goes live. So I actually do value the Q&As. Plus, I really just enjoy doing the live content. Um, but nonetheless, the last few of them, I have been cranky. I don't know how else to say it, but I, I, you know, as I've listened back to them, to my responses to people's comments and stuff, it sometimes has gone beyond that whole me being the angry character to just the like, and on top of that, I've had a hard time just answering some really simple questions. And, you know, you all know that I have had my struggles off and on in the past with my mental health. Um, and, you know, it, it's one of those things where I've been kind of going through a, a personally dark time again, um, which, which seems to have a resurgence about once a year at the start of the year. And I know why, and it's, that's neither here nor there. Um, and I, this one, I'm just having a lot of trouble snapping myself out of the funk this year, you know? And it's just been going on longer and my inability to just kind of catch up. Um, the, the Having plans thrown off right at the beginning of the year um, with all the chaos that lasted for a month, um, it really shot me in the foot, as it were. Or I guess I shot myself in the foot. No, 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 no. It really took me down and it's been really, really hard to recover. And the sad thing is that every time I start another uh, live chat like this by saying, well, I'm still not quite where I want to be and this and that um, has is not coming the way I want it to and everything's getting delayed. I, you know, I am putting a count on how many months um, have now been lost or not really lost because obviously I'm still putting out weekly content and stuff, and I'm still working on projects. It's just nothing is progressing quite at the speed or with the quality that I want to. And I am struggling with a lot of writer's block. It's just the words are just hard to get out, which is also why it's tough for me to answer things when people ask me what should be simple questions. And I'm usually very good extemporaneously. I'm just struggling to get the words out. Like to get to get my thoughts in gear. They they actually call this brain fog, which um is a thing. And but anyway, it's neither here nor there. But I do I did want to apologize to everyone, um, especially anyone who I may have been a little bit rude to when you have just asked honest questions or sought feedback or whatever. 
and my mood in the last couple of these things has not been great. And yes, I have reasons and I have excuses, um, but nonetheless, it really, it's not, it's still not good for me to take it out on people, you know, even if it's mostly just coming off as funny, angry, being angry. Um, and I really appreciate everybody's patience. And I also realize that once again, I am starting to end up being very unreliable where nobody believes I'm going to come out with something when I say I'm going to come out with it because, you know, of the number of times I've said, hey, actually, I got to push things back another week, another month, whatever. And, you know, people just when that happens, people just start losing faith in me and rightly so. And, um, I mean, I just had another setback and I started to mention this in the pre-show that is, I discovered that, um, a month's worth of content notes, outlines, brainstorms, um, have gone missing over the weekend. I, I know what actually happened to them. I know they were inadvertently thrown out during an office cleaning. Um, and there is nothing I can do to recover them. I have to reconstruct them. And that is going to be a pain in the ass because the next combat article, which is supposed to come out tomorrow, was in those notes and um, desperately trying to rewrite it over the weekend, uh, especially because it was a holiday weekend, just did not did not work out the way I wanted it to. So, yeah, here we are again with another pushback. And uh, it just kind of sucks is all. But I'm not going to... Um, I'm not going to belabor this. Okay, that's it. I, I said my piece. This is what's going on. This is what's happening. I'm really, really sorry. And also, you know, I, I, I the one thing, I don't like to talk about this because nobody likes to talk about it. And because, you know, to some extent, you always feel a little ashamed of yourself because you should be doing better. But at the same time, every time I do talk about it, I get um, comments from people who are like, hey, thanks for talking about it because, you know, I'm struggling too. And it's nice to hear someone else who is struggling and just can admit it. So listen, if you are struggling and, you know, you're having a hard time and, you know, things just aren't working out the way you want to and it's taking a lot of extra time to recover, just know you ain't alone. Like that happens to a lot of people. Um, and it's become a lot more common lately. Okay. The, you know, I'm not, you know, not going to go into cultural trends or anything like that, but it is very common. It is normal life. It is normal to struggle in life. It is part of the human experience and it can sometimes be very, very difficult to recover from that. Um, so, you know, reach out to people and but don't isolate yourself. That's the one thing. I don't, I don't want to give any advice. I don't do life advice, and I'm certainly not giving any medical or therapeutic advice. But if your tendency is to isolate yourself and to stop talking to people, um, don't. Don't. Because you do not want to be alone. Okay? Nobody wants to be alone. I am very lucky in that um, although I sometimes feel very, very alone, the fact of the matter is I am surrounded by an excellent community of people. And so are all of you. Everybody who is listening to this is part of this amazing community. So none of you is alone. And if you're, you know, if you're struggling, say so. Or just hang out. Just hang out and, you know, be a part of the community. And over time, you, you find ways to get through it. And you recover, even if it's not happening as quickly as you want it to, it will, you know, everything passes in time. 
Anyway, that's that's the angry news. I have re-maximized the Discord because now I actually have a couple of topics that I want to discuss. One is a little bit of a board game review, and then I want to talk about some topics that have come up as a result of the micro-challenge article. Um, and then uh, I'm going to take questions and comments. Um, so thanks everyone for indulging me though. And of course, thank you everyone for being a part of the community and, you know, being my friend. All right. Last time I did one of these things, I very, very briefly mentioned that Tiny and I had, um, indulged ourselves and purchased the Skyrim adventure board game from Modifius. Yet another one of these behemoth, um, boxes that you know full of full of advantage i'm trying i'm actually trying to find the the game online so that i can post the link here but i guess i don't need to someone will post the link in the chat they always do and then i'll hopefully remember to post the chat in you know in the notes for the article and i mentioned that i was really enjoying that tiny and i were really enjoying the game and that it managed to capture um a lot of the experience of playing um playing Skyrim, the, the video game. <laughs> Do I have to specify the video game? You know, playing Skyrim. Um, but I didn't really talk about it very much, and there's a couple of really neat mechanics it actually does. Thank you, Nitsua, for posting the link. Uh, that is the one. No, well, yeah, but that's the Board Game Geek link. All right, I was, I was looking for the actual Modifius company page there. Uh, give me one second. I can find it. Oops. No, I can't. Uh, no, I can't. Anyway, don't worry about it. It's going to waste time. Thank you, cats in an overcoat. Um, anyway, so it's, it's a four-player cooperative game. Well, I, oh, actually, the description is right there now, right? The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, the adventure game, is a one-to-four-player cooperative game of adventure and exploration across Skyrim. Players take the whole re roles of heroes involved in epic quests, working together to defeat the enemies and explore the vast expanse of Skyrim. It's, it's actually a really neat game. It is very exploration-focused, and it is very much about, um ignoring the main quest and gathering as many side quests as possible and leveling up. <laughs> I Actually, you know what? I shouldn't say that because the one thing it does that Skyrim doesn't is it, there is this kind of push and pull where if you ignore the, getting ahead of myself here. There's a reason I want to talk about it because there's two, there's two neat mechanics, or at least there's, there's two mechanics that jumped out at me as pretty neat. Okay, so anyway, here's the deal. It is campaign-style adventure game. So there is a story to it. The story is told through a number of shared world quests. The first of the two campaigns that comes in the box is three chapters that take place 20 years before the events of... 25 years before the events of Skyrim, um, the video game, uh, during the end of the Great War in um in elder scrolls land cyrodiil the, the whatever T tamriel um i don't elder scrolls 
whatever the world of Elder Scrolls is called. You know, there was there was the great war between the Empire and the Thalmor, and then this, then they they signed the treaty, which sort of like this touched off the events of Skyrim. I have to be honest, I'm not a big Elder Scrolls fan because I don't do a lot of PC gaming. So until um, they put Elder Scrolls onto console, I had only played any of them briefly. But anyway, so, you know, the campaign takes place as a prequel to the events of Skyrim. You play members of the Blades um, who are who have fled to the province of Skyrim and are hiding out because somebody has betrayed the Blades to the to the uh, Thalmor. Um, and then the, the, the treaty is signed between the Thalmor and the Empire. Um, which puts you in a precarious position. So you're trying to find the traitors within within the Blades in the first campaign. The second campaign takes place 25 years later, and it has three more chapters, uh, and that takes place during the events of Skyrim um, after Ulfric Stormcloak has murdered the High King and thrown the province of Skyrim into civil war. Um, and meanwhile, the remaining blades that were in hiding are kind of forced to come out of retirement, you know, to deal with, uh, you know, dragons and civil war and stuff. Um, there, the game feels very exploration based. Okay. And the players are like, it's cooperative play, but it's like gently cooperative play. Like you can go off and do your own thing. Um, or you can kind of team up and take on missions together um and but there are also missions that sort of bring the party back together toward the end of each chapter you know so you go off it's like you agree to go do your own little investigations and then you come back together because the information reveals what you need to do blah 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 um and along the way you can craft you gain skills you go through combat you explore dungeons you you know, you take on side quests, and the side quests have a lot of variety to them. And all the quests are handled by a big old box of numbered cards, um, which you are instructed to pull at certain times. And you pull the cards, and they tell you, oh, go here, and then this is the quest. And then you take a, you know, and then you do a skill test or a combat or whatever. And then success or fail, you flip over the card, and it tells you what do you want a success, what do you want a failure. And some, it's, it's lightly legacy. You don't, like, change the game permanently but you remove cards from play while other cards keep cycling through as you keep going through the campaign. So that's really neat. But I wanted to mention there's a really neat mechanic um, that um, I thought of it mainly because of the conversation that we were having here in the Discord, and I don't remember who was involved in that, but it was a, a mechanic where um, as part of the idea of macro challenge, like you should, it should be possible for adventure goals to degrade themselves. Okay, so hypothetically, if the party retreats from a dungeon and goes to sleep, the dungeon should recover from some of the delving they have done. And I realize it's weird to use the term recover in that sense. But, you know, the enemies reposition themselves, things move around, um, you know, monsters move into the, like, the goblin guards are dead, so then, you know, the spiders spread into the place where the goblins were, things like that. So the dungeon should rejigger itself 
and should make the next, like the party has to work a little bit at the start of the next day to reclaim some of their footing. And, you know, because they cleared all these areas of treasure already, now they're just, there's just stuff in their way. Traps get reset or moved around or thing like, um, stuff like that. So... Skyrim actually has this neat mechanic where at the beginning of each turn, the game accumulates or you, you, you accumulate threat tokens, which you then can distribute. Whoever is the first player has to distribute the threat tokens um, to different places on the board. And it represents sort of events getting out of control. Okay, um, you can put the threat tokens on quest, active quest cards, and each quest card has a limit on how much threat before the quest is failed out. Um, so every quest has a sort of time limit. You can put the threat tokens on other, there are certain cards that can accept threat, like in one of the chapters, um, you're, because you're hiding out, you're trying to pretend to be a normal citizen of Skyrim and not a former blade. You have a card of the, that is called your cover and it can accumulate threat. And if it accumulates too much threat, your cover is blown. Um, any of the major cities in Skyrim can accumulate threat and that can eventually throw it into chaos and rioting as nasty, you know, as the forces that are tipping Skyrim toward disaster um, start throwing the, throwing the different strongholds into, into um, chaos. So it's this really neat, very abstract little tool that I could certainly see um, building a mechanic around for a role-playing game, sort of similar to, but not quite the same as Dungeon World's Fronts. Okay, where, and, and what I'm envisioning here is it's a, um, it's a GMing tool. It's a world building and adventure building tool where the GM or the adventure designer or the scenario designer, whatever you want to call them, can figure out what things in the game world advance as time passes and as the players experience setbacks and just kind of push it those things. So, you know, the, the town can fall. If the adventure is about, you know, saving the town from, from chaos and the town can advance toward chaos and something like that. Um, Hoyrit, sounds like Blades in the Dark clocks. No shit, because everything these days sounds like Blades in the Dark. Yeah, um, it's, it's not dissimilar, um, but the clocks in Blades in the Dark um, I'm trying to explain why it's different. And it, it has to do with the level of abstraction and the, um, and the more broad utility of the tool and how it would link into other adventure building tools. And I have a feeling I'm going to now distract myself from my main point, uh, which is the big speech I was going to give about macro challenges and stuff. But... Okay, actually, let me let me get into this and um, yeah, Arkham is saying thing ch clocks go up no matter what you do to show time. These things can happen spor uh, sporadically. That is one difference is that it's not it's not solely linked to time. 
Okay, I gave an example of if the party goes off and takes a rest, then, you know, you know the, 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 the adventure recovers from their efforts. But it need not be that, because it can also be when the party suffers a setback. When a villain escapes, say, they're, they're trying to hunt down a villain in a dungeon. The villain, you know, they set off the alarm and the villain manages to escape the dungeon. Um, the villain now throws the next chapter of the adventure into chaos. Okay, it's an, it's an abstract tool for structuring macro challenges. Okay. Here's, uh, I'm, let, let, let me edit my, uh, edit my, uh, whatchamacallit, my outline a little bit to, to kind of get to the point. Actually, no, let me just launch into this. So, I said, yeah, I'm just going to jump to the next topic, and you, you'll see this is going to circle right back around to this concept of threat mechanic and why it need exist. Okay. So, like a clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Micro challenges. I made this comment in my last article on micro challenges that de or macro challenges. Sorry, I keep saying micro when I mean macro, which is <laughs> that's about the biggest mistake you can make is saying the word that is the exact opposite word of the word you mean. Anyway, in my recent article on macro challenges, which was, it was actually about attrition, it was actually about the concept of challenge in general, I said D&D didn't have the attrition macro challenge before third edition. And a number of people took, uh, I'm not going to say umbrage, they weren't umbraged at me, but took exception to that because they pointed out that D&D has always had all sorts of resources that get worn down by adventuring. And the, the problem here, the, what this, this demonstrates, this, this point that was also brought up in the in the Q&A for the proofread aloud of, um, of, of the uh, macro challenge article, um, because there was a, this back and forth discussion about macro challenges with, um, with uh, one of the folks who was listening in, where we were really talking past each other, and I wasn't quite sure what was being said. And the, I think there, this concept of macro challenge being in the game is actually way more complicated than it sounds, okay? Because a macro challenge is not a game mechanic, okay? It is a structure. It is a way all of the different pieces of the game are put together in an adventure, okay? So... Just having resource management and attrition mechanics does not mean the attrition mechanic is a core structure in D&D, okay? And that's because while it did have resource management and attrition, D&D prior to third edition didn't have refined design tools that were built for scenario designers to take advantage of the attrition game, okay? So for example, before third edition, encounter balance, when it existed at all, was always described as, and I shit you not, an optional rule, 
Okay. You were never ever instructed as a GM to consider the power levels of the challenges you were organizing in your adventure. Okay, there was no rigor to it where it said, look, if you want to build an adventure, um, you should limit yourselves to creatures of these power levels and distribute them thusly. And there was also no math behind that that supposedly set a ideal rate of attrition in the game. Those things did not exist until third edition when the designers looked at it and said, we need a way to build a structure or to lay the foundation of an adventure design structure over which scenario designers, which includes both professional game publishers and amateur GMs who want to write their own adventures, over which scenario designers can build a game without having to design a unique macro challenge, okay? I can design an adventure where the, the challenge is, uh, so you have to go into the dungeon and hunt down the villain, right? Um, and the villain, meanwhile, if the villain gets word that you are hunting them down, they're going to attempt to escape. Right? And so this is not an adventure where you can just go into the dungeon and kill every encounter until you get to the villain and then kill the villain. Okay? Even if you kill all the creatures in the dungeon, if you allow the alarm to be raised, then the villain may still escape. Okay? That's the concept of macro challenge. It is something that you have to do in addition to handling the game's micro-challenges so that you can handle every micro-challenge correctly or you can fail at some number of micro-challenges and still succeed. I mean, hypothetically, if the alarm gets raised, um, but then you can grab a dude and find out where the villain's bedroom is, then you can hustle your ass over there and maybe catch him before he escapes, even though it means, you know, like charging through, you know, hordes of monsters who are now converging on your position, okay? The problem with macro challenge is that every macro challenge must be designed, okay? It's not something that you can simply just like, there's no list of macro challenges. This is what I was trying to explain. It is, I have designed a game where the, the point of the challenge is catch the villain who is hiding in the dungeon. And the challenge element is the villain will try to escape if alerted that the heroes are after him. Okay? And then I design the whole adventure to provide that challenge. I figure out where the guards are and I figure out what the guards will do if they encounter the PCs and, you know, where the alarms are and what path the villain will take out of the dungeon um, or how to track the villain's position in the dungeon or, you know, whatever tools I need to run that game. I design those things so that I can make that macro challenge happen. That's the idea behind macro challenge. 
challenge. It is a very, very, very difficult thing to do because what it really amounts to is game design. That's what game design is. What is the goal of your game? You know, what are the characters trying to accomplish? And now, what do they have to do to make that happen? Right? And a boring game is one where they have to win three events and then they win the game. That's a boring game. Okay? A more interesting game is one where they have to, you know, as they deal with events, have to act strategically toward a the, the big-scale victory. Um, while at the same... And usually, like, I mean, games usually have a number of goals that end up in conflict, um, and they, they usually have a number of different strategies, um, and things like that. So it's very, very complicated. So the designers of D&D were very smart because they said, well, at its core, Dungeons & Dragons is a, um, it is a dungeon crawling game. Can we distill out some form of this is the generic challenge of every dungeon and code that into the game so if the GMs follow the instructions for adventure building, the macro challenge will be there anyway. And that's the attrition mechanic, right? The You have to efficiently get through things in order to manage the resources. And there are a number of tools in the game that actually, you know, they they contribute to this. One important one is Wandering Monsters, okay? Wandering Monsters, the mechanic everyone hates, is one of those mechanics that punishes inefficiency, okay? If you take too long, if you dawdle, or if you are too loud or cause too many problems, more challenges will get in your way, depleting your resources, and those challenges generally aren't carrying treasure. Okay? Now, D&D did always have that mechanic too, but it didn't have this, the actual savvy adventure design structure that told any game designer how to build a game that would have at least that minimum level of challenge. And it's a good macro challenge, as I said, because it is the sort of macro challenge that sits very quietly underneath anything else. It's not a very loud one. It's not a very domineering one. So if you were to write the adventure I was talking about where the villain is hiding in the dungeon and will attempt to escape if the players try to hunt him down in the dungeon, um, then the players as a secondary goal have to manage their resources such that when they do find the villain, they have the resources to actually defeat them, right? So the attrition macro challenge, it becomes um, a secondary goal in any game where you do more than that. Um, Combat Woosh is saying, if you do it right, does that mean accumulating XP and leveling up is also a sort of macro challenge? No, because you do not have to do anything other than overcome the micro challenges to accumulate XP and level up. Okay, in fact, accumulating XP and leveling up is progress. It's what you, it, it's how you earn rewards for playing the game. Okay, 
the macro challenge is the micro challenges and macro challenges should be the way you accumulate XP and earn treasure and level up. You overcome challenges, you earn rewards. That's how it works. Okay. Anyway, um, um, so, anyway, the point is there's more to a macro challenge, uh, to building a macro challenge in a role-playing game than just having the mechanics, okay? Somebody still has to put them together in a sort of structural framework over which other people can build adventures. And when you look back at your D&D 3.5 DMG and you see that list where it says, look, when you're distributing challenges throughout a dungeon, the, this is the ratio of easy, easy if handled properly, um, challenging and difficult, right? And that's there to basically provide the attrition, that's part of the attrition macro challenge structure that they built into the game. So are, by the way, all of the random tables that say, when you, you know, if you're filling in a dungeon, you should have this many encounters and this many rooms have treasure in them and this many rooms have obstacles and this many rooms have traps. Okay, all of those dungeon design tools were in third edition carefully designed so that if you followed those steps, you would build a dungeon that required some minimum level of efficiency and not just the players killing literally everything. Okay, and in fact, still avoiding spending resources and even avoiding encounters or handling encounters properly, 20% of the encounters were supposed to be easy if handled properly. I think it was 20%. It was either, it was like 10 or 20%, whatever. But some percentage of the encounters were supposed to be easy if handled properly in D&D 3.5. Um, then it would, you know, you had more power when you beat the boss or to get as far as you could in the dungeon or whatever. Okay. It was a weak macro challenge. It needed a little bit more but it was there, and 3.5, or 3rd edition, not 3.5, but 3.0, 3rd edition, is where it was actually added, where the structures existed, not just the mechanics, where they built the template into the game to tell a GM, this is how you build a dungeon, okay? You can go beyond it, okay? And obviously, you, you know, GMs are encouraged to go beyond that stuff, but it's a starting point. It's a minimum way of playing the game. And if you don't build it into your game, your games are kind of unsatisfying, okay? Because then you'll complain, well, the combats just aren't challenging enough and challenge rating seems to be totally off because my players aren't dying every fight. It's like, yeah, well, they're not actually supposed to, but you don't know this stuff. Okay, which brings me around to why I'm mentioning this whole structure thing in the first place. And that is, I have completely lost faith in giving advice to GMs. Present company accepted. I have come to realize that GMing advice is mostly worthless, okay? It's completely wasted effort, okay? You see it in a lot of different places. I get it often in the form of people telling me, well, D&D should include this, or Pathfinder should have that, or this game, the game should work this way. And then I say, well, if you actually read your Dungeon Master's Guide, you would find that this is right here, okay? 
And then the person would either say, oh, I didn't know it was in there. Or else they would say something like, oh, yes, I know about that, but I took it out because it's a sucky rule. And then when I say, yeah, but when you take that out, you lose the thing the rule is doing. And they say, well, the game should explain better that the rules should be followed. Okay? Th there is this belief that the game should be teaching the GMs why the rules of the game should be followed, which is utterly ridiculous. It is an unreasonable, impractical demand. But we all do it, okay? The truth of the matter is, many, many, many of us do not even read the rules. We don't. Okay, if we have any sort of experience at all, we're like, I don't know how to run a role-playing game. I don't need to read any of this. And we assume that we can write an adventure for any system right off the bat. Okay, as soon as we buy the system, we're like, well, I'm not going to run their stupid starter adventure. I'm going to write my own adventure because that's better. Okay, and we assume we can do better. Okay, we ignore things like, well, I don't want to have uh, random monsters. That's stupid. Random monsters are stupid. Okay, and so the problem is, like, that we don't follow, number one, people don't read it, okay? Number two, even if they do read it, most people assume that for some reason with role-playing games, that they're smarter than the game, okay? Which is something you don't encounter in other games. I play a lot of board games, too. I'm not obsessed with board games, but I do end up playing a lot of board games. Never once have I picked up a board game, read the rule book, and immediately said, well, I'm taking out this rule, this rule, and this rule, and I'm going to add a crafting system, okay? Which is something people will do right off the bat as soon as they start playing a game. As soon as they buy a role-playing game, it's like, well, this rule goes, this rule goes, this rule goes. This, I need, I'm going to hack in this system from that system. And, you know, it's like, you don't even know what the hell you're doing. And then when you break everything, you, you blame the system for not telling you you shouldn't have done those things. When, in, in point of fact, if something is written down in the rule book and it doesn't have the words optional next to it, it's important. Or else they wouldn't have written it down. And I'm saying this as the guy who is constantly complaining that the people who currently design D&D don't know what the hell they're doing, but I'll tell you something, their game is a lot less unplayable than the games most people are running with it, okay? Because at least, you know, they wrote in some of the tools people need. So, there is no point in writing advice, because most people are not going to read the advice. There is no point in instructing people and telling you, you know, you really should follow the rules because, because if you're ignoring the rules, you're going to ignore the advice that tells you you should follow the rules. <laughs> so like, what else could they have said in that rule book that would have stopped you from making the mistake? Okay. But now here's the crisis that this creates for me. I firmly believe that a role-playing game system like Dungeons & Dragons, Pathfinder, pick, pick your favorite, all role-playing game systems are one part game engine and one part developer's toolkit, 
Okay, because there is no game of Dungeons and Dragons. And I've said this before. This is not a revelation to anybody who's been paying attention to me. Okay? The point of Dungeons and Dragons is to enable a game master or an adventure designer to write a game that they can then run for their players or, you know, someone else can run for a group of players. That is the point of Dungeons & Dragons. It is a de developer's toolkit. Okay. Now, obviously, it includes a bunch of pre-existing assets. Okay. Things like clay. Because, like, if you're going to write a game, okay, think of it like this. You want to run this, this adventure of, you know, uh, catch the villain in the cave. Okay, that's my adventure. The, the you know... Bargle is hiding in the cave, the adventure, okay? I want to write this game. And if I didn't have the benefit of a system, what would I have to do? Well, obviously, before I even started thinking about Bargle and mapping the cave, the first thing I would have to do is write a mechanic. Like, how do I resolve actions? You know, what can the players do on a turn? You know, how, how do we determine the outcome? And then, uh, you know, you have to move through all these steps. Okay, now I need a combat engine and I need stealth mechanics, you know, all these things. Figure out all the different possible things that can happen in your game and write mechanics for them all. And then once you've written all the mechanics for resolving basic things, then you have to, okay, what are the player's options? What tools do they have? Well, they could pick a class. They can have a race. Well, what, you know, what races are available? What classes are available? Okay, fine, I'll design all of that. And then they can find um, spells and magic items and equipment. Well, what are the rules for equipment? What does a weapon look like? What stats does any generic weapon need? Okay, now I have to make a list of all the weapons that I want to include in the game. and All, all of that work is getting done before you map the cave and put Bargle in it. Okay? Dungeons and Dragons is a shortcut. It is a pile of assets um, and mechanics and code libraries and all that other shit that anybody can use to build a game that they can then execute, they or someone else can then execute for a group of players. It's just, I mean, okay, that's what I mean when I say it's a developer's toolkit. And that's what Dungeons & Dragons should be. Okay, Dungeons and Dragons is way too focused on the play experience, specifically now Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons' biggest problem, as we're going into the development of not fifth or not sixth edition, not one D and D, just D and D again. Dungeons and Dragons is way too focused on the player experience, and not focused at all on providing the GM tools. Because GMs will not follow advice, and nobody wants to follow advice anyway. Okay, if you bought the GM advice and it was just, or the GM's guide, or the Dungeon Master's book, or whatever the hell you buy, and it's just filled with advice that is basically a game design course in a book, you'll hate it. Because what you really want is, you know... Um, at the very least, to start with, you want a drag-and-drop level editor, right? You just want to drop dungeon rooms on a map, bloop, 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 move monsters in them, bloop, 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 you know, right-click on the treasure chest and set it to mimic, or right-click on the treasure chest and set it to poison needle trap, yada, yada, yada. Okay, I have compared Dungeons & Dragons to Super Mario Maker before because that is absolutely what it should be. 
if GMs, though, are not going to read advice, they're not going to follow advice, and they are not going to use tools, what the hell do you do? Like, how do you build a toolkit for people who refuse to use the tools? I mean, the thing is, I can count on professional game designers. You know, like, Kobold Press, if Kobold Press wants to publish an adventure for whatever game I write, I can count on them knowing their shit, okay? That I don't, they don't need to be told how to design a good game, okay? But, you know, John Q. GM, who buys my system because I have promised that he can write adventures for his friends, he's an idiot. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to take six months to learn all the intricacies of game design. He wants to be able to drag and drop something onto a piece of graph paper that is going to provide a good experience for his friends. And if he fails to do so, John Q. Game Master is going to blame my system for being a bad game, and his friends are going to blame my system for not being fun, and I have just lost five customers. So this is ultimately the crisis of designing a role-playing game system. One, by the way, that I think I'm the only one who's even talking about, because to my knowledge, I don't think in the last 15 years, many game designers, maybe a few of them have, but I don't think many game designers are actually really looking at their role-playing games as this sort of developer toolkit idea, right? They really don't talk about it in that respect. They're, how are, they're designing Dungeons & Dragons by playtesting. Like, let's play the game. There is no game. What the hell are you playing? What the, one of the things you should be doing with a playtest is giving the toolkit to a bunch of GMs and say, okay, make an adventure with these tools and then run that and let us know how that went. Okay? Anyway, now I realize that has... Um, that had sort of a depressing ending because I basically said, ah, there's no way to do this. Um, you know, which is why, like, honestly, it's easier just to publish adventures, right? <sighs> Nitsua says, does the Mensa Redbox approach get at this problem? Uh, well, again, the problem is if no one's going to read the rules or follow the instructions, then it doesn't matter how you present them, does it? It's as simple as that. You know, but ultimately the Mensa red box approach, like the problem with what Mensa, what the Mensa red box was trying to teach people was actually very, very simple, right? It was, you know, it was basically just draw a map and fill it with shit because again, you know, game balance and macro challenge just didn't exist before 2000. Okay. So the Mensa red box was just, you know, throw, throw together a dungeon. And here's a random table you can roll on. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. My point is, though, like, at some point, you just have to throw yourself in and say, well, I'm going to do the best I can. Okay. So, 
the the key is, and the reason that I'm getting at this, the reason why the threat mechanic was so intriguing to me was because I did see a possibility there to hard code another kind of macro challenge structural tool using this threat mechanic from Skyrim so that maybe attrition isn't the only tool in the dev kit. Okay, maybe there's another one for event-based adventures or time-based adventures or shit like that. Okay, and the reason why you need to hard code these systems is because you absolutely cannot rely on anyone just learning how to design good games, which is what it actually takes. Okay. Anyway, uh, with whatever time I have remaining, well, it's going to be like seven minutes at this point, I think. I'm sorry, that, that ended up being a lot longer than I expected it to. Um, oh, I have eight minutes. Uh, I'm going to tackle the one question that was in the... Oh, now it's seven. Well, I am going to tackle the one question uh, that Jazzy put into the Mostly Monthly live chat Q&A thread earlier today, or an hour ago, or two hours ago at this point. I don't know when it was. What is the biggest struggle GMs have that is stopping them from being good GMs? And the reason I'm going to bother to answer this instead of just saying, well, I don't have time for Q&A this week, except the Q&A is important and it's fun for interaction. So we'll see how we can do this. But I actually took a moment to think about the top five things that I think stop GMs from becoming good GMs. So, Angry's top five. Yeah, oh, Doug just said something interesting. Sounds almost like you have to build mechanics so into the system that you can't cut it out without a lot of work. That's a neat idea, and there's something there, but my immediate counterpoint is People will cut them out anyway, and then they will just leave all the wires and bits that used to connect to it just hanging and dangling and electrocuting people. <laughs> you know, like, yes, you can make something really, really hard to cut out, but by the same token, people will just rip it out anyway. It's really tough. But anyway, okay. Top five things getting in the way of you being a good GM. Number five. And this, I didn't realize this, the speech that was going to turn into the speech it did. So number five, not knowing the rule system, especially before you change it. Okay. That's the number five thing. You want to not be a good GM? Just don't learn your rule system, but fuck with it anyway. Okay. Number four, number four way to not be a good GM is rely on game mechanics to solve your problems. Need to design an adventure or a chase encounter or something? Just come up with a way of doing it with tokens and cards. Okay. Number three. The number three way to avoid being a good GM? Overthink shit. 
Really think through everything. Sit there and theorize. Try to figure out just how to do it right. Don't trust your gut. Don't trust your instincts. Just think, 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 and you can solve any problem. That'll really screw you up. That'll keep you from being a good GM. Overthinking. Okay, number two. The number two problem that will keep you from being a good GM is not being willing to work hard at it, okay? GMing is a lot of work if you wanna do it well. Anybody can shit out a game and anybody can just run whatever, but if you're not willing to put in the hard work or if you feel like, well, this is hard, so I'm doing it wrong, you're not gonna be a good GM. You have to work at it. You have to work at it a lot. Okay, and the number one thing that will stop you from being a good GM is trying to be a good GM. And I'll let you noodle that one. Anyway, that is my list of the top five things that will keep you from being a good GM. Okay. Oh. And Nitsua has compiled them into a handy list just to, uh, I, Arkham is saying I feel attacked by number two. I hope some of you feel attacked by all of those things. Uh, I am guilty of three, three and a half of them. Sometimes four. So, anywho. So that is my live chat, uh, such as it is. Um... Considering the crisis you can explain, I can maybe see the barest part of why developing Slaplash in the system. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, hold on. Don't, don't mute me, producer. This one's important. October Foundry says, angry. Considering the crisis you explained, I can maybe see the barest part of why developing Slapdash and the system that shall not be named is so hard. I'm sorry if me asking for them has contributed to the pressure and the crisis. Okay, no. Asking me to build stuff and asking me how things are going and asking me for status reports and being excited about the stuff I'm building, that is there is nothing wrong with that. I don't want anyone to stop doing that. Honestly, that's the stuff that kind of powers me. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, like I'm the one who put it out and said, hey, I'm building this thing. And then I put it out and said, here's my timeline for it. Okay. I have some problems that are really, really difficult for me to overcome. Okay. One of them is overpromising. All right, I tend to assume in the excitement of a new idea or a new project that I can throw things together much more easily than I can, okay? Because I forget all of the work that goes into finishing something, okay? And this is not a, I'm a starter, not a finisher, Okay, because I, you know, I know I said that a long time ago, but here's the problem is if you want to build something, it doesn't matter whether you are a starter or a finisher, you have to be both. That's just the way it be. If you want to accomplish something, you have to do what you have to do to accomplish it. So I can say until I'm blue in the face, it's much easier for me to start things than it is to finish things. And the solution is not 
to not try to finish things, but rather to strategize better, recognizing that finishing things is going to take 10 times as long as I think it will. So Slapdash was a really, I got very, very excited about it right away, and I initially built a game engine for it, and I did literally, in a, in a little notebook over a long weekend, throw together most of the game engine. It was then when I had to refine the game engine into even something that was just a playtest document that ultimately ended up being about 50 pages long, um, that it became clear that this was a much bigger thing than I thought. You know, and I, this is, your. I wrote a 120 page book. I know how fast I can write something. I figured I had the mechanics. Um, now all I'm doing is basically writing them down. So, you know, I've written a 120 page book. I know how long that took. So, uh, you know, and already the mechanics are designed. So all I'm doing is writing them, right? Well, it turns out it was actually very, very, very different. Okay. In my zeal, I do overpromise things. And that does contribute a lot to the stress, but that is of my own doing. Um, I've also managed my time very badly um, for the last nine months, really. Okay. It's not something that started with this year. Um, it started at the tail end of last year, where I was managing my time very badly. And as I mentioned last month, um, it put me in a position where uh, I'm always chasing the urgent, right? Where, you know, I always have a deadline to chase, so I never have time to breathe. And then when I do have time to breathe, the chasing the urgent is extremely stressful. It keeps you loaded up on cortisols and, you know, it drives you bonkers and exhausts the hell out of you. And so then when you don't have the urgent, when it's like, oh, I have a week before the next deadline, um, then you sort of, you kind of relax a little bit and say, you know what? I can take a day off to recover because I've been chasing deadlines for a month now. Um, so I'll just give myself some time to recover before I launch into the next thing. And if you're not careful about how you do that, then the next thing becomes urgent very, very quickly. And it's really, really hard to dig yourself out of that pit. You know, I, I'm not the best at time management and I am passionate, I am excited, and I am very, very good at spotting ideas. I am very, very good at trying to, at cramming ideas together. I really am good at cramming ideas together. At just, you know, like seeing, seeing in one thing how I can apply that thing to other things and just connecting things together. But that's not all, ideas are cheap. Ideas are cheap and easy. Anybody can generate ideas. And I know that's that sounds like a silly thing because some people really, really struggle to come up with ideas. But at the end of the day, ideas are cheap. Um, the ability, to, it's because no, even if it's hard to generate the idea, it's 10 times harder to do anything with it. Okay. So I'm going to end on that note, which is kind of a somber note, but it was important for me because I don't want to go run too far over time. Um, you know, uh, I'm sort of uh, trying to take care of myself physically, which I haven't been doing, and it's been taking a toll on me. 
And uh, so there's some medical advice I'm trying to apply. And one of them is to actually sleep at night, which is a hell of a thing. Uh, <laughs> it's a hell of a difficult thing. But I didn't want to let that one sit because I do not want anybody, anybody thinking that they have contributed to the situation that I find myself in. Nobody in this community has done anything to make my life more difficult. Everybody in this community has, in some way, helped make my life better or helped me get done what I need to get done. You have encouraged me, you have supported me, you have shown me your friendship, your compassion. You know, some of you play games with me. Um, some of you just try to push me to work when I need a push because it's really, really easy to procrastinate, especially when you're under a lot of stress. So nobody here is making things any worse for me. You're all making it better, and I am grateful for that. Um, and honestly, the biggest struggle I'm having is I really want to be worthy of that. And I don't feel right now that I'm earning what my community is giving me. Um, and I'm just trying to get back to that place where I feel like I am. You know, that I really have, you, you know, just... That's, that's it. I'm going to end it there. I'm going to say thank you to everyone for everything, and especially to October Foundry. Keep being excited. Keep asking for updates. Keep looking for stuff. Um, and I will try to push stuff out as I can. Um, understand that the, the, the release schedule is still a little thrown off, uh, especially because some work was destroyed inadvertently. Um, and I'm going to get that back on track. Tension Dice is coming out at the end of the month because if it doesn't, it's going to cause serious problems in the future. Um, I, and the month, the year is almost half over now. So, you know, it, it's shit or get off the pot time, kind of. I'm very excited about Tension Dice, partly because of what the Tension Dice thing represents. Um, partly because I think the, the final form of the Tension Dice is sort of a proof of concept for the Angry Hacks idea, and I think that I can get, you know, a year of good content out of the Angry Hacks concept, um, which, but Tension Dice also enables other projects, and it enables other hacks. So, but I think I've said that before. Anyway, now I am babbling, and the producer should be back on the, on the mute button and be warning me that in, like, one minute, he's going to cut me off. Because I've already said my goodbyes and everything. So, um, yeah. Everybody, thanks for hanging out. Thanks for the huge turnout. I'm going to continue to do these on Monday nights. That, that Right now, that works best in my schedule. Um... So I will see you next month. And in the meanwhile, I will catch up to you periodically and let you know what is going on. Uh, I am going to deflate a little bit of our article hype. Uh, article hype for tomorrow is will not be paid off. Do not get hyped. But the article will come soon. And good night.